What's really going on in the heads and hearts of the humans around you? I'm Mads Grummet, journalist, entrepreneur and startup investor. And I'm Sabina Reid, psychologist, speaker and media commentator. And this is Human Cogs, a podcast about the universal experiences that really matter and the candid conversations we need to have to share them. If you like Human Cogs, we'd love you to hit subscribe and please leave us a star rating. That way we can keep bringing you more stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries to help us all do human well. Over the past summer, I spent countless hours deep in the pages of a remarkable book. The book is called Eve, How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Human Evolution, and it's written by researcher, scholar, poet, writer, and self-described freak, Kat Bohannon. The book is an epic story and sweeping scientific exploration that starts with mammals 200 million years ago and moves forward through time to fundamentally challenge the real origin of our mammalian species. Now, it took Kat 10 years to write this book. It's seriously researched but beautifully readable and densely packed with astonishing facts and revelations about how the female body came to be, why the size of male balls influences monogamy, why wet nurses in ancient cities catalyzed explosive population growth, and why modern medicine and neurobiology needs to stop the default to the male as the norm. This conversation touches on all of that and much more, like the mind-bending concept of a newborn infant's upsuck. Yes, you'll need to listen to learn what that is. And it will completely change what you think you know about human evolution, the design wonders of the female body plan, and why Homo sapiens, that is Eve and Adam, have become a dominant species on our planet. A warning that we talk about vaginas and sex and balls and we swear in this episode, but also that you'll need to strap on your big brain for this listen and get ready to learn a lot because this conversation will literally blow your mammalian mind. Here's my chat with the extraordinary Kat Bohannon. So Kat Bohannon, thanks for making time in your hectic schedule to join us for a chat on human cogs today about this Thank most you. extraordinary book that landed in my hands on Christmas morning. <laughs> it was a gift from my husband, actually, and it kept me companion over the long days of summer. And it it was quite intimidating, this book, when I received it. It is thick. <laughs> it's, a, it's a brick. But it really caught me off guard because it's deeply scientific, but it's disarmingly conversational. And it's densely packed. How would you describe what your book is about? Oh, my goodness. Um, I'm, I'm glad that you found it engaging, of course. Um, it's about a lot, isn't it? It's about 200 million years of evolution and how that's tied to new science uh, in women's bodies, women and girls throughout the world, people of all genders uh, that have ovaries. It's about the ways in which all women and girls have been understudied and undercared for until very recently in the sciences. Um, I would say still understudied, still undercared for, but we're working on it. We're getting better. We're finally freaking getting better in ways that we should have done for a century. But, you know, the train is actually moving on the damn tracks now, and that is awesome. Um, and so it's about a lot of different stuff, but fundamentally it's about this basic idea that what we are as homo sapiens is made of where we come from 
And for some reason, when we kept telling the story of human evolution, we kept talking about men, pretty much men. Uh, just, I guess the chicks were like over a hill pounding some tubers while they built the future of our species in their actual bodies. I don't know where we were in those stories, but we weren't in them is the point. Keeping those babies alive. I mean, I yeah. think the, the book, you know, on on its cover, you know, Eve... I mean, we forgot about Eve in favor of Adam. Very much so. In biology and biomedical sciences and in any stories about human evolution, um, while in religious uh, traditions there are many stories about, you know, some female originator, uh, depending on which tradition you're talking about, she could have more or less power. Yeah. In the Judeo-Christian traditions, she... Well, she was just straight up evil, I guess. Sorry about that, guys. Uh, the fall from Eden was us, apparently. That was just us wanting to know stuff, and now we're out. Sorry. Um, but actually, unfortunately, in the biomedical sciences, as I talk about in the book, um, there is such a thing as the male norm, that whether you're talking about a study in rats or mice or all the way up to human subjects, we have for a very long time been only studying male subjects. Nearly any study that you hear about, man, you you read something in a newspaper about some new drug for, I don't know, diabetes, there's a very good chance it was only studied on males, mostly male rats, because we do terrible things to rats, and that's just science, uh, right? So, so the cumulative effect of all of that um, has been that many, many medications on the market were not sufficiently studied in female bodies, and mm. we're only just starting to figure out when and how that actually matters. And unfortunately, too often it does matter. Yeah, I mean, I think, and we can get into this later, it's ultimately a, a feminist work. In some ways, it's a sort of a, a radical reclamation of the female and the female biology in, in human history and in our evolution. Of course, the frequent emission of female bodies from scientific research uh, means that modern medicine has really been built on gaps if yeah. we're to a male norm. I mean, how, when we look at the instance of, of even rats, it, it seems a poor test ground for developing medicines for the complexity of the human biology. Well, here's the funny thing. On the one hand, yes, agreed. There are many problems with studying rats, especially if you're only studying males. But actually, both in my book and in the lab, there are really, really good reasons to study rats, and there are actually really good reasons why even just studying male rats will still give you something. It'll still give you something to work with. So in the book, I start at the beginning of mammals 200 million years ago, and I move forward through time as we get closer and closer, chaotically, haphazardly, in no way as a model of success, but it was a revolution towards the human body, right? But the reason that we study rats is very much because there's this um, assumption of what's called conservation of traits. Now, in biology, what that means is the reason that you think if you find something to be true in a rat body, it may well be true in a human body is that all mammalian bodies are really similar. Actually, there's a lot that's really similar between that gross rat that just crawled out of your garbage, sorry, and us, actually. Um, and so they're going to be analogs. They're going to be similar proteins, similar genes, similar functionality between something like a rat, as different as it seems, and our bodies. So that's part of why we 
tend to start with rodents if we're mm. trying to figure something out in physiology. And then if it's something that ends up being like, oh, maybe this is important in medicine, maybe this will eventually become a drug target. You know, you start in your basic science, but maybe eventually you start doing something that might make a difference in medicine. Well, then you move on up the chain, as it were. You move up to maybe a guinea pig maybe a dog, uh, maybe a non-human primate, macaques are popular, and then eventually a human trial. But you do a lot of basic science and a lot of other mammals first with that basic assumption that actually you're getting that window into evolutionary time with the assumption that our bodies are still doing similar things, still functioning similarly, still kind of built similarly. Yeah, so the problem with, a, with the gap is that in all mammals, uh, female reproduction is really costly. Like, and by costly, I don't mean money, although also, um, I mean, uh, it's hard for our bodies to not just lay an egg. And the vast majority of mammals, except for out there in Australia, of course, your favorite little monotremes, the echidnas and the platypus, but there aren't that many of those, frankly. Uh, the rest of us are still giving birth to live babies. And even in marsupials, that's still just a radically different way of doing things than just laying eggs in a nest. And you go you go a lot into, in the book, of course, the complexity of, of pregnancy and, and birth and some of its drawbacks. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think where, where, we, where we talk of rodents, and it's not a rodent uh, per, per se, but the morgi, this, this yeah. sweeping epic tale where this book starts. Um, and it starts with this idea of, of mother's milk. Yeah. Tell us about the magic of milk because I was fascinated. I kept telling everybody about these things I was reading. <laughs> Tell us about the magic of milk. The magic of milk. Uh, well, the first magic of milk is that it exists at all, frankly. Um, this is a very unusual thing for a body to do, to nurse an offspring with liquid made of your own body is frankly weird. Now, many lactating mothers today will recognize this deep unease and even thinking about it. And we try not to think about it too much, frankly. I've breastfed uh, two babies and, you know, there are these black holes in my memory where I'm just shoving that and trying not to. Just the breast pump alone is a thing I'd like to forget. So, but the thing about the evolution of milk that's so cool is it doesn't start as food, actually. It starts as water. Even human milk is like 90% water. So when a baby cries, it's not so much that the baby's hungry, it's more that the baby's thirsty. Because of course, all land mammals have to get their freaking water from somewhere. We're no longer swimming around and sucking things in and, you know, gills. Like we actually need to drink water in order to not desiccate yeah. So that's one of the first things that milk does. But what's more cool, I think, about milk, the magic of milk, is that it's deeply immunological. It's really a kind of infrastructure building thing that we do to help boost our mammalian babies' immune systems when they're still more vulnerable than they will be later. There's mm. a lot of immunocontent in milk. There's a lot of immune system jiggering that happens in milk. Um, the other really cool thing in the magic of milk is that a huge portion of human milk is not digestible by human bodies. That's the crazy thing. So the milk sugars, you remember the oligosaccharides? Yeah. So there's such a thing as a prebiotic. You've heard of probiotics. That's like you eat your yogurt. Yeah. Um, and that's great for your bacteria, contains bacteria. But prebiotics are the stuff that our bacteria eat 
basically. And a third of all of human milk sugars are these things called oligosaccharides, which aren't freaking digestible by the baby at all. It's for her gut microbiome. That's who it's for. You're actually making milk in part to set up a whole bacterial colony in that kid's guts. And and, and for those listening to this, I mean, it's really worth reading the, the, the chapter about milk. One of the things I found fascinating, I have also breastfed for nearly four years of my adult life. Um, oh, geez, yeah. Four kids and um, and was fortunate enough to be able to do it because um, it's not easy uh, at first, certainly. Um, and one of the things I found fascinating was that the saliva of the baby is almost in a feedback loop with the milk mechanism of the making mechanism of the mother. Uh, oh, yeah. Such yeah, that, yeah. that it's this feedback loop. So the milk adjusts to give the infant what it needs at certain points of time. Oh, man, the upsuck. The upsuck is so weird and cool. So it's exactly what it sounds like, U-P-S-U-C-K. All right, this is the technical term, uh, which just makes me so delighted to think about every time. Now I'll share it with you. Okay, so nipples didn't come online in evolution straight away, right? The duck-billed platypus, everybody's favorite Australian beastie, right? You know, she lays eggs and her pups slurp the milk off of her lower belly, no nips involved, which of course makes sense when you think about the bill, but that's true of the echidna too, no nips, okay? So it comes out of what, pores or holes? Yeah, yeah, there are like these specialized pores attached to the mammary glands that sweat out into what are called mammary hairs. They're basically these hairy, special hair patches that kind of deliver the milk in a slurping function towards, right? Yeah, so it's being lapped up basically by very invasive little tongues. And that's how that goes down. Now, the tongue is still involved once you get to something like a human mouth. But what's cool about the nip, about the nipple, is that you can form a docking seal around, if you're properly latching on, which neither of my kids were good at, and I'm sure many of your listeners know what I mean by that. But when they are good at it, they can form this vacuum-like seal around all of that nipple. And what that does is it gives them the ability to suck in their cheeks and create a vacuum to help draw the milk out of the mother's breast. Now, it isn't just held in there like a weird watery bag. There's only a couple tablespoons in there. It actually trigger, triggers something called a, a letdown reflex. Like you start making milk when the kid suckles for the most part. Anywho, but the cool thing about it being a vacuum is that as that tongue, that baby's tongue is rolling underneath the nip and it's going to do that suck, suck, swallow, suck, suck, swallow. You may have heard that from your lactation consultant while you were not greatly succeeding at this task. Anyway, so the kid's doing that, but what's happening is the focus of the vacuum as the kid is rolling the tongue and then swallowing, the focus of that vacuum is moving back and forth inside the enclosed space of the baby's mouth. And what that does is it creates a tide, much like you'd see on the shores towards the ocean. So that wave of milk is coming in over the top, going down the kid's throat, and then the spit in the baby's mouth, because what do you have with the tide? You have an undertow. The spit is being sucked back up in through the mother's nipples, into her ductwork, all through the breast, where it's being read like some kind of weird ancient code by this army of immuno agents and sensors that tailor the milk to suit. Dude, if the kid is sick, the milk changes. The hormones change. The ratio of proteins and fats to sugars change. And yeah, part of her immune system comes on board and goes back out through the nipple too. It's nuts. This is actually 
The boob is nice to look at for some people, but it's actually a two-way communication platform, which is not how we usually talk about women's bodies. I love the way you describe it. And your book is full of, you know, you've got a great sense of humour and your book is full of these beautiful turns of phrase that you use um, uh, about our bodies. Um, If we think about milk being dynamic and shifting and this two-way communication between the infant and the mother, where we see the increased use of powdered, you know, powdered milk and formulas, can they replicate the complexity of, of human milk, given that it's, it's a static? The short answer is no, not completely, but they're doing a pretty good job. And importantly, the human body is remarkably adaptable. Part of why we've succeeded as a species is not just that we're omnivores, but damn, we're really flexible. As a species, we are so capable of eating a wide range of stuff, um, and we're also capable of drinking milk that is not perfectly suited, right? So my children both have, uh, or had, now that they're three and five, they're past it, but when they were, they had a long-standing relationship with a rubber nipple because uh, they sucked at, at nursing. We did, gave it the best we could for as long as we could, and I am forever damaged. But anyway, you know, but I also, of course, pumped and did the best we could, and they were always having to have supplements. I made a ton of milk, just they weren't good at getting it out of me. So yeah, um, it's a lot better than it used to be. So formula um, some decades back was not as great. Not It was a little sugar-heavy, had too much corn syrup solids, a bunch of stuff that turned out to be not awesome, but wasn't crippling children. Let me make that clear. Not crippling babies. A purely formula-fed baby can still be a perfectly healthy baby. Fed is best. But of course, in our long evolution, we didn't have rubber nipples, okay? If you couldn't feed your kid, if that kid was bad at latching, the kid died. That, that was it. There was a whole lot of death and mayhem. Um, so it makes sense for our bodies to have optimized as best as it could for what it had to work with. Mm, well, thinking about rubber and feed is best, of course, uh, agreed. Thinking about rubber nipples, in the book you talk about um, the fact that men in some parts of the world have put babies to their breast to suckle, if not feed. Talk, yeah, let, let, let's hear a little bit more about this men's role in, in breastfeeding or breast comforting. Yeah, I get this question a lot, actually. Um, not in interviews so much as in my signing lines, you know, so a lot of authors, you know, we sign books, people come up and people ask me all kinds of stuff at this point. Some stuff they probably shouldn't, but you know, that's fine. I'm, I'm, I'm here for all of it, right? It's a privilege, right? So, but a really popular question is what are men's nipples for? And there will be people who will just wait for me to answer that, even with like 20 people behind them. They're like, I want this answer right now. I've been pressing. I want to know. And um, the short answer is that it's probably harder to make nipples in a female embryo's body as it develops uh, and not make male, which is to say it's probably harder to get rid of them in one sex than to just keep them for both. Like, in other words, the simple act of making nipples is simply maybe too important for how we build a chest wall 
in a homo sapien fetus, mm -hmm. then, you know, just kind of tweaking it like why have the guys have it now. But once it's online, however, once you happen to have a male nip, it has all kinds of uses. Um, many male bodied people will be happy to report that it can be involved in their sexuality. Feel free to ask your partner should you have one. Um, and the other thing importantly that it's there for is that human babies don't really care what happens when they suckle on something. They're just happy to suckle and they find it soothing. So if a guy holds, uh, uh, which is a male-bodied person, holds a human infant to his bare chest, that child, if its mouth is anywhere near that nipple, will try to suckle from that nipple. It's just going to happen. You can move the kid away. That is fine. I support your choices. The kid isn't trying to imply anything. It's just that every mammal has a rooting instinct. If you, it, it's just they, you know, newborn mammals are just looking for a nip. If they're a species that has nipples, they're just doing that. They're just looking for the milk all the time. If you put uh, your hand next to a baby's mouth, it will start gumming on it. It seems cute and gross at the same time, right? But that's in part because it has the instinct to look for a nipple. Like this finger could totally be a nipple. I might get milk any second. I'm down with that, right? And they find it soothing. And so there are some cultures in the world where it is very normal. The Aka uh, tribe is the most famous one I talk about briefly in the book, where it's just normal for the guys to quiet a crying baby with their own nips. And it's not seen as an emasculating or violating or gross thing to them in their culture. Uh, in my uh among the many American cultures that I know of in my country, I don't know of any that are super down with that. We have some pretty strict gender rules around here and people have- Yeah, feelings. and if you if you was on a train or in a cafe and you know, you're male and you put a baby to your nipple, I, I, I don't know how that would go down here. I don't think that's gonna go down super well. I mean, it doesn't matter how liberal a space you're in. There are just like ideas about what bodies are for and that. That's going to be really challenging for a lot of people. That said, watching a female-bodied person actually lactate and nurse a baby in a public space is also really complicated for a lot of cultures. Yes. Many people feel it should be less. I would like it to be less. But like, I also see that that's another one of those things where people really may not be ready for that and, and we should do some public education campaigns. Now, that said, like... Part of the problem, of course, is that um, given that most male nipples don't make milk, they can. My book will tell you how they do. But is that, is that with synthetic, uh, you know, if, if men take tablets or, or... So it depends if you're doing it on purpose. If uh, you are a male-bodied person and you start lactating without meaning to, go see your doctor immediately. It's usually a sign of cancer. That's not cool. You don't want that. That's probably a tumor on your pituitary, like now. Um, if you are a male-bodied person who is trying to lactate, um, if you are a trans or non-binary person, and you uh, you will actually end up taking the exact same hormone protocol that um, a female-bodied person would do if she adopted a baby and wanted to nurse. It's a series of synthetic hormones that effectively mimics pregnancy and birth, and you will develop mammary tissue, and you more than likely, and you will probably have that tissue lactate on command. Um, it doesn't work for everybody, but it doesn't work for all people with two X chromosomes either. Um, so yeah, with, and the real takeaway there that I thought was really cool, um, when I learned that wasn't just like the politics of it all. What I thought was really cool about it was the science of it all, which is to say, we're so freaking mammalian. We're such mammals that even if we have 
a Y chromosome our whole damn lives, if that body receives the right hormonal signaling, it's like the nipple is just like ready to go. Like, okay, all right, time to make milk. Oh shit, baby incoming. You know, that's just like, that's how much mammal we are. Um, and that was, that was really cool to me for a bunch of reasons. Um, yeah. Yeah. So with nursing, and again, let's stay on stay on boobs for a bit because I think boobs sure. is a big part of, you know, mammals. Um, so big on me, unfortunately, yeah. Yeah, me too, although although drooping. Um, so where we think about nursing, so in the book you talk a lot, I and mean, in some ways this is revisionist history, you know, this book is, is going back. Of course, we have no fossil record um, of, of some parts of, of brains or wombs, but you're almost filling in the gaps or retelling the story through your scientific, um, you know, joining the dots. Now, one of the things that you talk about is the theory that you have about the the growth of ancient cities and, and human population growth and oh, yeah. of wet nurses. Yeah. yeah. W w what is your theory there around this fundamental role that wet nurses who have been overlooked as secondary, you know, citizens in many respects have played in the growth of humans over time? Oh, yeah. So this is a fun bit. So in some ways, this is largely a thought experiment, but actually it turns out it might have been really important. So here's your uh, public service announcement for the day. Uh, I'll re-say that. Um, here's your public service announcement for the day. Breastfeeding is a semi-reliable form of birth control. Uh, the longer you breastfeed, the longer it will take for you to start ovulating again and becoming fertile. Please use other forms of birth control because it is imperfect. And any good OBGYN is going to tell you that, and you should probably believe that person, um, as anyone who's given birth twice in one year will tell you, right? Uh, so here's the thing. Um, once upon a time, in many different human cultures, it was commonplace for some women to effectively pay other women to nurse their children. These are called wet nurses, right? You may have heard about it in Shakespearean time, very common, mostly for rich people. Let's make that clear. Uh, in some cultures in ancient societies, it was more distributed, less necessarily an upper-class thing and more of a kind of middle-class thing. But anyway, the point is, is it was common in many different human cultures. Can I clarify something, Kat? Is that because people, they didn't, the women didn't want to continue to feed their babies or because it was inconvenient or, or, or otherwise? I mean, what was the choice toward wet nurse over nursing your own baby? I think in many cases, when it comes to ancient cultures, we simply don't know um, because we don't have well-kept journals Fra in cuneiform, you know what I mean? Like we don't, we don't entirely know what the uh, choice space was around lactation for many different effectively classes of women in different societies. As we get closer to modern times, you get more of a sense of whether there was choice and what was involved. But there's also just cultural norms. I mean, my mother's generation uh, was regularly fed formula. Is this because their mothers didn't want to breastfeed or felt pressured to? Or was there a cultural norm around it so people weren't really thinking about it? I don't know. It was probably a mess, kind of like it is now. You know, what is choice versus cultural pressure? All we do know is that there were common practices in many, many different human cultures for having wet nurses. We do know that. And we do know that in many of these cultures, there were laws around it. Like, you know, Hammurabi had laws around how much you have to pay a wet nurse and what she's supposed to do. We're talking ancient, ancient societies had rules that was so common. 
But the thing is, is very rarely do you find uh, historians or paleoanthropologists thinking about what effect that might have on fertility patterns, right? Because it's a numbers game. If it's an imperfect birth control, then you end up having a woman who has stopped breastfeeding sooner than she might have otherwise, giving her baby to be nursed by another professional, and she, her ovaries come online sooner than they would have otherwise. But because it's imperfect, the wet nurse likewise is not having exactly zero babies the whole time, or at least not all the wet nurses are, which is to say you have two women producing more babies over time than they would have if they were both just breastfeeding their own babies, right? So that's cool. That's cool. That's like basic stats. That's like a numbers game, whatever. But what if whole urban societies are doing this? Well, then growth gets exponential pretty fast, actually. And what was really cool is I found a paper that talked about it. And um, it seems that at least of some of the ancient urban cultures we know of in the ancient Levant, uh, communities that had regular practices of wet nurses tend to tended to have much larger urban populations than communities that didn't. So ancient Jerusalem in the golden era, this is King David's time, uh, was a few thousand people. And Babylon, the great evil city behind the giant gates, yeah, that was a whole lot more people. And Babylon had wet nurses and uh, ancient Jerusalem had far fewer because of cultural norms around wet nursing. Now, there are many other points of comparison there um, in ancient societies, but the real takeaway is, well, what do you need to do to build ancient cities? You need to literally create citizens. And so then this is a human reproduction story, as much as it is a where are you getting your food and how are you handling disease story. And very few people have actually talked about the reproduction side. Um, well, because we rarely talk about women. Yeah. And, and certainly reproduction is the central thesis, you know, of this book, how we perpetuated and sustained ourselves over millennia. Um, and, and one of the things is sort of shattering the myths around how we think about reproduction so that we're all sort of, you know, symbiotically floating in a perfect match with our fetus that, you know, that they're growing. <laughs> um, and, and you cover this concept in the book of maternal fetal competition. What is that? Uh, the short answer is it's real. It's hella real. Maternal fetal competition. Um, if you think of the uterus as an environment and there is one pool of resources, well, you have the maternal body using those resources and you have a fetal body, you know, mediated through the placenta, uh, also trying to get at those resources. So they're in competition for those resources. Um, and that's not often the way we talk about what it is to be pregnant, you know, because it seems kind of harsh, maybe. I don't know. Um, I think what I did end up describing human pregnancies as is, uh, well, they're blood-sucking demon fetuses. Um, and I, I think that should be a new medical term. Um, I love my children very, very much. I'm not the first person to become pregnant to think this kid's trying to kill me. Um, but, but it is technically, biologically, maybe a little bit, right? Because inevitably what you have is an embryo, which is long evolved to get as many resources as it can. It is hard to build a body. It is hard to make brand new bones and brand new fat and tissue and have a brand new heart that starts beating. That's a whole lot of energy and material, right? 
but you also have a maternal body which has longer evolved to stay alive. Just stay alive, actually. And one of the best arguments going for why we give birth when we do is a metabolic threshold. It's actually not when the baby gets too big that it wouldn't fit out the hole anymore. Although that is a thing, the obstetric dilemma, that's the formal term, is a thing. And as people who've given birth can tell you, it's hard to get it out that hole. Oh, yeah. No, let's... Yeah, well, I think you describe it as like a, a watermelon coming out a lemon-shaped hole, I think is your... Yes. And if you've ever met fruit... Yeah, that's <laughs> exactly. Um, so that is obviously a mechanical problem, but the bigger threshold is actually metabolic, which is to say there's a tipping point. At what point does it become so metabolically costly that for the pregnancy to continue, we'll start to either kill the fetus, kill the mother, or both, right? That's actually a better trigger for labor. And there's a lot of new science going into looking into whether or not preterm labor is deeply tied to metabolic overload, right? Mm -hmm. That many, in some cases, maybe some of the times we give birth earlier than we should, and these are the preemies that end up in the NICU, um, that something went down in that pregnancy with that placenta's uh, interaction between the mother's body and the baby's body that basically... Uh, you know, shut the whole thing down. Mm. And I think you also talk about the descent into the birth canal and the fact that the baby has to twist at a certain time and it's pretty kind of... Oh, uh, yeah, the mechanics of human birth are yeah. just a shit show. Oh, they're just terrible. That's just like a terrible idea. But, you know, let me make it real for you for all of your listeners who aren't primatologists. Um, so a first-time human mom uh, will usually be in labor about a dozen hours, 12 to 16 kind of kind of normal for how long, you know, start of labor to eventually kind of pushing the baby out like Ugh. that all sounds perfectly fine. Well, a chimp mom on average will take about 30 minutes with the same process, though, like the same contractions and birth canal. Yeah. But does the baby does the baby chimp turn as well on in its descent to, to it does actually have uh, a bit of a rotation, but the big issue with us in the obstetric dilemma and why we have that weird mid-vag rotation thing, so first the head comes out and then the whole thing has to rotate and then the whole thing comes out, uh, is because while the baby's head is, um, well, it's gross to think about, but true squishy, you know, the plates, the fontanelles, the soft spots that don't close till later. Well, actually, the bony plates of the skull don't fully fuse in part so that giant head can fit out our vag, right? Okay, so the problem actually in human birth isn't simply the head, it's the shoulders. Because our clavicles, this big shoulder structure that holds up the head or eventually does, newborns are bad at that, that actually is rigid. Um, and so where you all often get babies stuck is often not the head, but the shoulders get stuck. It's called shoulder dystocia uh, coming out. So that rotating move, like first head and then twist and shoulders delivery, that's actually where things tend to go wrong. But any good OB knows how to handle that. Yeah. Well, they cut you, right? Episiotomies are common or, or go straight to Caesar, you know, where we look at the, at the you know, uptick in that. If we've been so good at evolving over 200 million years, why haven't we evolved then to have, I don't know, bigger vag opening or a smaller babies? Why hasn't the body adjusted for this fundamental birth process? You know, um, if you're religious, take it up with any given God. Um, for the rest of us, uh, the, the short answer is that evolution produces all kinds of crap traits all the time. 
all sorts of different species are just suffering through really terrible features of their body plans that are just not quite bad enough for the trade-offs that make something beneficial or at least not bad enough to, uh, you know, make you go extinct slash evolve away. Mm. In other words, maybe given enough time, our body plans would have evolved or would evolve a better situation than the crap we're left with right now. That would be great. And I'm down with that. Of course, the alternative is we just die off. Um, so, you know, roll the dice and see how that goes. How we made it through was we invented gynecology, uh, midwifery uh, as the primary start. Um, and the best analysis we have going for when that started was probably 3.2 million years ago among the Australopithecines. Lucy, that furry little chick you may have heard of, 3.2 million years ago, she had a midwife. She had someone helping her because she too had at least the mechanic difficulties of birth. Where's the evidence base for this midwife theory? So the evidence for the midwife theory is certainly not that we went back in time with Doctor Who and uh, took a video. It's that um, many, many scientists have analyzed the pelvic structure of the Australopithecines and estimated their growth rates. So they're basically trying to figure out how big is this baby and how big is the hole it's coming out at term, more than likely. Um, and at what point of the fossils we do have, does that start to match the picture of what we would think of as an obstetric dilemma of a difficult birth, right? Um, it seems to come online mostly around uh, walking upright. Um, we have a lot of, uh, well, a lot is an exaggeration. We have a sufficient number of fossils of Australopithecines. How about that? We would all like more hominin fossils, but um, that, you know, we were able to make our estimates. Right. So one of the other interesting things where you sort of piece together ancient societies and how they they evolved, um, one of those is you talk about the development of monogamy and the role of the balls of men in monogamy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know a weird amount about male genitals at this point in my life. Actually. Yeah, let's switch. Let's get, let's get away from vagin and go toward the balls. Um, why is the size of balls so important in men? And, and, and what is its role in monogamy? Yeah, so testicles. Uh, everyone loves them or everyone puts up with them in one way or another. They are uh, fundamentally where you make your sperm if you're a person who has them. Okay, so there are things that you can know about primates um, simply by examining that primate's balls. Um, the main thing you can know is how much male-male competition that species has. How much are the guys competing for access to female mates? That's what ball size will often tell you. So for example, in the gorilla, you got that big guy, think King Kong, right? In a gorilla, you've got a big male and a bunch of tiny females, and they've got a harem-based society, right? You know, the alpha male and a bunch of females. Now, actually, technically, would you call that, well, I mean, like as many as a third of the babies might well be fathered by a different guy, but he doesn't know that, and that's fine. Um, so, but for the most part, he's very successful. For the most part, he's the, the primary dad of the babies that come along in his group. And his testicles are tiny. They're just like little peanuts, just like not a lot there. Um, but in the chimpanzee, 
They're massive. Like you, like there's no reason for one animal to have balls that large for that given size of body. Like why is that just like, you know, ding dong down there? Just a whole lot. Okay. And the reason that's happening is because the male chimp is competing with a lot of other male chimps because they are a promiscuous society. They have sex with kind of everybody kind of all the time. Not as much as bonobos who are really just. That's just like nothing you've seen on Pornhub, just like bonobos are just doing their thing. They're our sexy cousins. But chimpanzees, a little bit less, but still a lot. So not so not monogamous, in other words. No, 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 no. God, no. Quite the opposite, I would say. Um, they are not exclusively mating at all. In fact, uh, and so that means they have to make a lot of sperm just to try to have a chance at having a baby. And so they have to build out really huge testicles. That's what testicles are for, for sperm making, right? Now, the human testicle size for the size of animal that we are is kind of Goldilocks, kind of in the middle, not too big, not too small. And so that does tell us a little bit about where we come from. We probably are not coming from massive chimp-like orgies, or at least not more recently. The point at which we started building testicles like these, we weren't having them. But we probably are also weren't like King Solomon. We weren't one guy and a bunch of wives, or at least not when we built this body plan. Not so much so that it affected how we build the average body. Somewhere in the middle. Now, some scientists argue that what we're looking at then is the start of monogamy. The start of a reduced male-male competition or exclusive sexual access to one female. Now, for me, I don't know. Honestly, uh, there are pluses and minuses to monogamy for ancient females, um, which we could get into or, or not. But I, I would say at the very least, we can say we were somewhere in the middle, somewhere between those two, maybe a mix of monogamy and other types of societies, but enough that the balls, if we started out like chimps, well, they shrank. And, and I suppose the correlation then where we think about the changing structure of society where it moved to monogamy, um, it, it it also carried with it wealth and power and, and, and shifts of those. Yes. Um, and in, in your book, you talk about the fact that matriarchies persisted for much of human life uh, and that there's evidence from our ancient mating strategies that that, that was the case. What then, if we do flip toward our current society, which is predominantly patriarchal, how do we account for that shift? I mean, I know it's a big sweeping question, but... In, in your view? Well, the first thing I would say, just um, which is a totally minor correction, is that I don't know at what point in hominin history we may have flipped from uh, matriarchal societies into a mix of matriarchal and patriarchal or purely patriarchal. Mm. I don't know when that happened. It may well have happened before we were homo sapiens. Um, and I assume there's actually a deep flexibility in how we organized our societies. We probably, because again, that's that's like what our species does. We're really good at adapting our behavior to suit our local environment to better survive and thrive. Not necessarily consciously. We're plenty self-defeating all the time. Climate change, hi. But um, in our deep, deep past, I would assume that there was uh, a dominance of matriarchies, at least at some point in the hominin line, and that we did then flip, at least in some of our societies, uh, towards um, secured mating, towards what you might call monogamy, and that males have exclusive access to females. The major problem with that is um, then there can be such a thing as a prince. There's no such thing as a prince in 
um, chimp society. Who the hell would know who the father was, right? When you have paternal uncertainty, this is the term in primatology, it's paternal uncertainty. Presumably, the reason the females have so much sex with all the males in chimp society isn't just that it's fun, although we hope it's fun for them. I don't know if it's fun for them. Let's just hope, okay? Um, but because it also makes the guys not know who the dad is, or at least that's been the main argument, right? That if there's just a whole bunch of partners with any given female, uh, you can't ever be truly sure who the kid is, you know, if the kid's yours or not. And if you don't know, then maybe don't kill it. Because actually, there's a lot of infanticide in many different primate societies. And one of the big arguments going for why you get promiscuous societies is because you get this paternal confusion, that it, it reduces the threat of infanticide. Because the males, who are often baby killers, may well then, uh, you know, hedge their bets, as it were. So if you flip to having males know who the dad is, yee, suddenly he has to protect the hell out of his offspring and the female becomes incredibly reliant on male protection to keep her kids alive, okay? That would be a very bad idea in a chimp society. You have to have some deep structural changes in such a society. But in matriarchal primate societies, um, while you do get some infanticide, you get a lot less. And there tend to be rules around don't mess with the kids or the females will gang up on you, which you do see in bonobo society, which is matriarchal. And that is a very big shift. So I make the argument in the book that I don't think you can actually arrive at anything like monogamy unless you are in a matriarchy, unless there are strong rules against killing babies just because they're not yours. Um, and of course, strong rules for female alliances. So um, it was a dangerous shift. Monogamy is actually, for a primate, not necessarily a great deal. It's actually trading a lot, right? We usually talk about the arrival of monogamy as this moment where a chimp male like gives you really delicious treats. You may have heard this, like trading meat for sex, sort of the ancient origins of prostitution among chimpanzees. It happens sometimes, not too often. Well, it's unlikely that that's the big awesome thing going on for an ancient uh, female human or female hominin, because once the guys know who their sons are, well, as you say, uh, not only are other guys going to kill that son because everyone know who's, knows who the dad is, um, but it's also true that now the males can inherit social status, which they could never do before. It's it's so it's just fascinating. There there are so many more questions in in this book, and I have so many more for you, but we can't talk all day. But there is one that I would like. Uh, to us. One of the chapters in the book focuses on the brain. Now, you have said in a, a few other uh, interviews that you hated writing that. Oh, God, yeah. Chapter. No one wants that job. Yeah. Um, wh why did you find that so difficult? Oh, God, I am a queer woman sciencing in public, and now I got to write a chapter about the evolution of the human brain and whether or not there are innate sex differences. Woohoo! Everyone's job that everybody would want in my position. Oh, yeah. Great. Definitely sign on for that. No, God. And not only that, but also for a long time, you know, the science in, the science around um, innate cognitive capabilities and whether or not there were sex differences are just so steeped in eugenics and just misogyny and just hot garbage of cultural mayhem that you have to be willing to wade through that to find the real data. And you also, in my position, have to be a person who is willing to find things that you might not like, 
if the science says that, you know, X is true, then you got to report that. So no, I didn't like any part of that process. Of course but, not. So, so dare I say the words, is there a lady brain? I mean, I think what we're talking about is what you did not want to find was evidence that that females do have inferior cognitive ability to men. Of course. Uh, what did you find? Well, uh, the central thing I found is that um, there is very, very, very little to support the idea that the male human brain, the typical male human brain, is on average more intelligent than the female human brain by just about any way we would want to describe intelligence which of course is a diverse and and many skilled thing right but even in math even in math the thing that always gets so contested the math or in the uh the british folk call it the maths for some reason brits like to make it plural i don't know why i don't remember what you do in australia the point is that even there you know the kinds of test result differences between average pools of male and female test takers barely reaches statistical significance. We're talking effect sizes that are incredibly small and incredibly fragile. Like you'll have two different, uh, slightly differently designed tests and have opposite results, which is to say um, the science is pretty shaky. There is one feature of human cognition in these kinds of, you know, subsets of what we call math that do seem to have a slight male advantage. And this is uh, a kind of spatial intelligence, and you can try it for yourself. If you picture a box, a cube shape in your head, you can close your eyes if you want to do it, go ahead and picture it and then rotate it 180 degrees. So if you are a person with two X chromosomes, it will take you slightly longer to answer math type questions doing that skill than it will a male test taker. You will not answer less accurately given sufficient time. It is not the case that you will come up with wrong answers more than males given sufficient time. Now, I'm not talking about a difference of a half an hour, people. I'm talking like seconds to minutes. Like this is not a huge difference, but it is true for whatever reason that the typical male brain seems to turn a cube in its head very slightly faster. So, you know, everyone throw a parade. Uh, congratulations, boys. You win. And that's actually, that's about it. That's that's about the strongest strength that I found. And it wasn't because I was unwilling to dig in. I mean, I spent 10 years writing this book. And in every single year, I spent at least some time on research for the brain chapter, mostly because I would be like rage writing and then have to set it aside. But but yeah, that was the most compelling evidence I found for a really strong functional difference. Um, the rest of it was kind of a mix. Mm, so anatomically or physiologically or, or structurally, there was nothing you could find except that um, one of the things that you bring up is that girls score better. This is academic intelligence, so obviously there's lots. Uh, but girls score, score better at every academic subject than boys until puberty hits. And roughly, then, roughly speaking, yep. Yeah, and then the girls' scores plummet. How do we account for that? The short answer, again, is, uh, oh, it's sexism. Right, it's sexism. That's uh, that's what it is. It's sexism. It's just sexism. Can I say that again? Um, so, in other words, um, there's such a thing as stereotype threat, and there's such a thing as implicit bias. Um, in this case, stereotype threat, here's what I'm describing. If you take 
Now, this is almost all done in college-age people. So the psychology of that is complicated. Usually you get uh, psychology majors taking their first courses and they're obliged to participate in studies and that's where you get your subject pools. Anyway, so if you take a group of female test takers and you expose them to the idea that girls are bad at math, now, you don't have to say it to them. You don't have to be a big, aggressive jerk about it. You could just have a poster nearby that kind of implies, right? But if you do that before they take a math test, they will score more poorly than a similar group of female test takers who weren't so prepared. But it's not just that. If you take a group of male test takers and you expose them to the idea that boys aren't as good at emotion and then you give them one of these standard facial recognition tests where they are supposed to say what facial expression this person on a computer is making, like scared face or angry face or what have you. Uh, they too will score more poorly if you've told them that boys are bad in emotion than boys who had done otherwise. Sorry, by boys here, I simply mean cis men, yeah, um, who are usually college students. And this effect runs the gamut in all kinds of tests we might take. Um, engineering tests for people of color who are told that their particular cultural background is worse at engineering. You know, it goes on and on and on. Actually, um, this idea that you can alter cognitive performance based on um, the influence of a social idea it's actually pretty robust. It keeps coming up again and again and again. So what's happening when a girl hits puberty and her test scores change? I don't know. Maybe she started really paying attention to social signals. I certainly remember that was true of me when I hit puberty because suddenly everybody was looking at my body differently and my body felt different and God, the hormones, so how I felt about it all was more dramatic. All the things, okay? It was all the things. But pretending that that doesn't influence scores in a test-taking environment is weird. We're super social mammals. We're influenced by this stuff. And I suspect that that's actually one of the biggest drivers for why test scores start to change. Mm. Yeah, and there's a lot of evidence to say that, you know, girls do better in all girl environments of learning and boys do better in co-educational. There are some theories uh, to say that that's the case, but yeah. But looking at it as as that sort of psychosocial influence almost on on the academic performance. You know, same sex environments, there are pluses and minuses. We'll just leave it at that. I mean, I, unfortunately, same sex uh, schooling tends to come along with a lot of other baggage. Um, depending on how that school's set up and why it's there and whether or not it's the norm, you know, there's a lot of same sex education going on in um, Afghanistan right now. So cool. There are also a lot of other religious environments that have same sex. So I, I don't know. I'm mixed. Let's say I'm mixed about that. Um, but I can see the arguments for it in a perfect scenario. Yeah, as am I. Um, at the end of the book, um, you say, and, and, it's, and you know, you're a poet, actually, aren't you? I mean, you've, you've written a lot of poetry, and, and this book carries so much beauty in the way that you, you put words together. But at the end of the book, you write that um, women used to be matriarchs, and our ancient grandmothers were a huge part of how we invented human culture. That women's mouths are the root of human language, and that every, and, and I'm paraphrasing, and that every power men have ever had over women is something we gave them. We just forgot. We forgot we can stop. Do you think it will stop? Oh, 
I hope so. I think so. I hope so. Pretty much that. I mean, look, the sheer suffering that so many women and girls are enduring right now for all sorts of different reasons throughout the world are not something that we should discount, are not something that we should think doesn't matter simply because we've made some small gains, right? Um, so we all have to keep working really, really hard. One of the beautiful things about having spent a decade thinking about deep time this crazy amount of time, 200 million years of time, um, is that it does give a certain perspective. You know, if you pull the camera back and you look at the last few hundred years of so many different human societies, it seems clear that many of us are moving towards greater sex egalitarianism and have been progressing along that path for a long time. If you pull the camera back even further and look at how our bodies evolved, like I say in the book, hominin evolution has been moving towards a reduction in male competition and literally more of an equality, a physical equality between males and females. Our males are not that much bigger than the females, actually, compared even to a gym. Yes, well, that too, that too, which is an implicit threat, but sometimes we're friendly with them anyway, right? So, the idea, in other words, is that if you can pull the camera back, there is some hope in it. You can see that we are on this path, and we have been for an almost impossible to imagine amount of time, which kind of can defang all of this pushback we're getting uh, against women's rights and the rights of girls throughout the world, right? So we can both honor that people are suffering right now, and we need to alleviate their suffering, and it is indeed our responsibility to do so. But we can also legitimately have hope knowing that we're still on the right path and we've come so far already. And even though it's a long way to go, it's not nearly as long as you think. Well, as the mother of four daughters and for all the women and girls uh, out there, thank you for the incredible work that, that you have done with a decade of your life to, to create this incredible uh, research and um, illuminating writing. Um, it, it's quite extraordinary. We usually end our chats on Human Cogs by asking our guest a final question, and that is, who do you think is doing human well? Um, I'm not going to ask you that. I'm going to say that I think you are for the first time in the history of this podcast, I'm going to nominate you. I don't know. That might be too much. I don't know how to deal with that big a compliment. That well, seems I just, no, I really, I, I think everybody should read this book. It's, I mean, some people have said it will go down as a classic and, and I hope it, it far outlives our lifetimes. It's so incredibly important um, and really flips the notion of the story of, of us uh, on its head. So thank you, Kat, for your brilliance and your great sense of humour. It's been such a delight to talk to you. Oh, thank you so much. I'm honoured and thank you for having me on. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Human Cogs. We hope that this conversation has led you to think a little bit differently about yourself and those around you. And thank you for all the amazing feedback that we get about these conversations. If you do like Human Cogs and what we're doing, we would love you to hit subscribe and please leave us a star rating. What that means is we can keep bringing you more stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries to help us all do human well. well.